You're listening to Brave Not Perfect with Reshma Sajani, presented by Anchor and Girls Who Code. Hey, it's Reshma Sajani here. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Brave Not Perfect, a podcast featuring conversations with brave, not perfect changemakers. This week, I am talking with my dear friend, Stacey Abrams. She's a politician, a lawyer, a businesswoman, a former Yale Law grad, and now she's running for the governor in the state of Georgia. A few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of hearing her speak, and I was blown away because she is a powerful storyteller, and she's the real deal. I think Stacy represents a generation of women who are going to lead our nation. I am so honored to have her on the podcast today. Hey, Stacy, how are you? I'm well. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Um, well, I know you're busy, so let's get started. So it's an incredible time, right, for women to be running. You've seen this massive increase of women. I mean, the cover of Time Magazine. Uh, in your own race, you're running against another woman named Stacey. Uh, and so how do we keep up this momentum? I think the first and most important part of this is women owning their power, understanding that it's not only our right to run, but that we have an obligation to leverage our voices in this country. And so whether it's running for local office like school board or city council or running for state legislature, running statewide like I am for governor or running for president in Congress, we have a responsibility to ensure that our voices are heard at every level of government because we are more than half of the voting population. So how, what inspired, like, how did you get brave enough to run, right? They always say with women that you have to ask them several times before they do it, whereas men just kind of run when they feel like running. Like, tell, tell us a little bit about, like, how did you do it? How were you not scared to, like, make that plunge? The first time I intentionally ran for office was at Spelman College. My freshman year, I ran for the student class council in part because I was irritated by uh, some administrative decision that had been made. And when I brought it to the president of the college, she said, no, students make these decisions. If you want to have an impact, run for student government. So I was like, okay, I'll do that. And from then on, at during my time in college and then in graduate school and law school, it was very plain to me that the people who stood up and took responsibility for asking for change were most successful when they held elected office. Um, activism is critical, we have to have it. But it is the elected officials who get access to the most information and have the greatest ability to implement the largest amount of good. I'm very pragmatic. And while I'm an introvert who did not see herself always as someone who would run for office because that required talking to people, I realized that by standing for office, whether it was in student government or standing for the office of governor of Georgia, that the bravest decision I could make would be to use my voice to demand the changes I thought were necessary. You're an introvert who's running for governor of Georgia. Tell me about that. It is not the easiest thing in the world. Um, but I, I learned early on when I decided to run, I, I, I have a new book that's coming out called Minority Leader, and I recount talking to my best friend about running for office, once she finished laughing at me, uh, she said, you realize you have to talk to people, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I haven't quite figured out the way around that one. 
But here, here's what I learned. Even though my basic personality is not, um, you know, gregarious, what I do know is that people want to know that you care about their lives. They want to know that you'll listen to their challenges and their stories. They want to have the opportunity to be connected to a larger community. And that's the role that I play. So it, it's not about me. It's not about my discomfort. It is about my capacity to be a conduit for their thoughts and for their needs and my ability to leverage the skills that I have and the training I've received to ensure the greatest amount of good for their lives. So I want to talk about you're going to when you win, you're going to fill a lot of firsts, right? First black female governor in the U.S., first governor of color in Georgia, right? First female governor in Georgia. What does it mean to be a role model? Being a role model is about showing people possibility. It's about taking risks. And even if you aren't successful, showing people what that courage can feel like. Because what you and I both know is that winning and losing is not the determination of your success. It's whether you continue to fight for what you want. I intend to win this election. Let me, let me be very clear. But I am emboldened by the number of people who said to me they are willing to run for office or they're going to work on a campaign for the first time or they're volunteering for the first time, especially women, because of what they've seen in my campaign, because they've heard themselves in my story. And so what I want people to see when they see my campaign, what I want them to hear when they hear that I'm the first woman, the first woman of color, the first person of color, the first black woman in America, all of those are metrics for the experiences I've had and for the perseverance and resilience that I've developed. And I want them to know they can do the same thing. Why politics? Like that's, it's something I honestly struggle with a lot, right? I feel like, you know, at Girls Who Code, I've learned that like you can make a lot of difference kind of outside of the political system. And, I, and you've, you've, you know, run organizations, you, you're an entrepreneur. Like why, why, why do you feel like politics is the way that you can best serve the people of Georgia? When I started my career after law school and grad school and college, I had already realized that we needed intersectionality to affect the change that I wanted to see. And for me, the most important, most lasting, and the broadest reaching change we can implement is the elimination of poverty. Eradicating poverty increases access, it increases the economic mobility of communities, it creates wealth, it does all of these things that we need. It, it will diminish uh, the number of people in our jails and the number of people, unfortunately, sleeping on our streets. It will increase access to health care, improve quality of life. All of the things we say we want for society come closer to fruition with the eradication of poverty. And I wanted to know how you do that. And in college, I studied political science, economics, and sociology. I looked at how do you do it through the nonprofit sector? How do you do it through the public sector? How do you do it through the private sector? And so I realized that if I wanted to be the most effective person possible in the eradication of the obscenity that is poverty, that I could not avoid being in politics as part of my tri-sector leadership. And our campaign, as of the end of January, had already reached out to more than 600,000 Georgians. That's an extraordinary number of people to bring into the body politics. And my mission is to do that, especially among young people, in a way that creates the habit 
of civic engagement through voting. I don't want to win an election simply because I got people to vote for me on a single day for a single reason. My mission is to make certain people understand the roles and responsibility of the governor and that they come out to vote to hire a leader, but that they also understand they have to come back and hire everyone else who speaks for them so that they not only vote for me on May 22nd and again on November 6th, but that they vote for their city council members if they're up for office, that they vote for judges in Georgia in May because that's when we put them on the ballot, but then that they come back in 2019 and 2020 and that they stop, they, they cease to be people who vote and they become voters, people who as a constant part of their identity see the action of voting as not only a civic responsibility, but a source of their power. That's what I want. No, it's powerful. You know, you talk in your platform that you want to, for children, provide more than just a quality education. What do you mean by that? We have, I think, diminished the nature of what quality is. We, we now operate on the least, you know, the least offensive type of education we can deliver. And if you are a student who is grappling with poverty, who speaks English as a second language, who lives in a rural community, um, or who has special needs, then quality is not the metric. I want bold and ambitious children who believe they can accomplish anything. That, that's not to say there aren't going to be limits, but those limits should not be determined by the amount of education you received and the type of uh, access that you have. It should be determined by what you decide you want. And when I talk about build, build, educating bold and ambitious children, what I mean is that no matter where you live in the state of Georgia, no matter what your economic background, you should have the right to learn how to code. You should get the opportunity to study it and decide, yes, I want to do this or no, I don't. It shouldn't be determined by whether or not you happen to live in the right zip code on the right day. And if your school system decides that you're in the right school to get that training. We had a school in Georgia that in 2017 or 2016 didn't have a chemistry teacher for the entire year. That's a tragedy. The other challenge we have in Georgia is Georgia is a very large rural population. And right now, 60% of Georgians in rural communities have access to the internet. That means 40% have no guaranteed access. If you expand it to communities that are impoverished, communities of color, and a lot of these communities have gender correlations as well, that also presumes that people can afford the internet that they do have. So even if you want to teach coding, even if you want to improve access to computer science, a child who has to do homework but doesn't have the internet can't do their homework. And if they aren't able to fully access and realize that academic opportunity, they are most likely to just not take the courses or they're going to fail those courses. And we have now set them up for failure long-term because we didn't think about the holistic needs of children. What, what is your brave, not perfect moment, right? What, what's that moment in your life where you could have done everything right and could have been scared to take a risk or fail, but you did it anyway? Because I always say like, it's almost like bravery is like a muscle. For me, it was like the minute I, the first time I lost my first race, I was like, yeah. oh, I didn't <laughs> die. You know what I mean? I can keep doing this. And it really changed the trajectory of my life in terms of my capacity and my ability to just take risks and it not frighten me. Because I think a lot for a lot of women, 
they're afraid of failure because they're so used to being perfect and doing all the right things. And all of us, I feel like sometimes just have that moment where we say, screw it. You know what I mean? I'm going to do this. And it doesn't work out. And we're like, oh, okay. Like, I can do that again. Did you have, oh, I have those, those moments, moments all the time? Um, my life is comprised of those moments. But but here's here's a twist I would put on what you said. I don't think it's just that women think they have to be perfect. I don't think women feel they have the freedom to fail. The freedom to fail is the ability to know that if you aren't successful, it will not be attributed to your entire gender or your entire race, to everyone who's ever looked like you, but that you have the individual ability to make mistakes and that there are resources that support you standing up again. And sometimes failure is about learning what else you need to do. And the brave piece of it is accepting you weren't right when you started, accepting that you have responsibility to make things better for yourself and easier for you the next time. And and realizing that sometimes you got to do extra work to make your dreams come true. They they aren't just going to happen. No, I get you. My secret dream is to be a Bollywood star. So, you know, so I'm going to out you. You're also a novelist under the pen name Selena Montgomery. And I love that you have these two, in some ways, like very different sides of yourself, right? The novelist and the politician. Like, what do you, what do you say to people who feel like they can't live their lives in multiple ways? I am privileged to have very little worry about embarrassing myself. Um, and, and I say that, but what I mean is, I, it's not that I'm not afraid. It's not that I don't worry but I've become very comfortable with the outcome. When I wrote my first novel, I actually wanted to write a spy novel, but the publishers I was talking to said, you know, women don't read spy novels and men don't read spy novels by or about women. And no one's going to read one with a black woman as the main character. So I turned my spy novels into romance novels. And I have had the greatest joy in my life being able to create these characters and live these lives and, craft these amazing men that I have yet to meet in nature, but who I'm sure are out there waiting to come and introduce themselves. But the the part that for me is very tied to being a politician is that in both roles, my job is to excavate ideas and to think about new ways to get things done, but also to enjoy just the the sheer act of connecting. Uh, Now, I will tell you, being in the legislature is nothing like writing a romance novel. And there are days where, you know, I would have much preferred to be in one of my novels than sitting in session. And, and it's two very different parts of my brain. I mean, I'm a, I'm a tax wonk by nature. And one of the reasons I use a pseudonym is that I was writing tax policy papers, publishing those at the same time I was publishing my novels. And it would have been like reading romance by Alan Greenspan, which did not <laughs> seem like a very, uh, you know, wouldn't have made my editors very happy. But what I will say is that there, I, I, I enjoy the ability and the complexity of having both sides to my personality. I enjoy the ability to weave together in, in a novel. I've one novel about an ethnobotanist. He falls in love with a thief. So, you know, there, there's that. But, you know, being able to explore these complicated ideas, but always to make them fun and accessible and a little bit, you know, a little bit risky and risque. And it, it just makes me happy. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Brave Not Perfect. Got a question for me? Send us a note at bravenotperfectpodcast at gmail.com or call in directly via the Anchor app on your phone. 
Every week, I'll answer questions from listeners like you on topics ranging from women in politics, feminism, education policy, and diversity in tech, to what it's like running a company or just being a mom. I want to hear from you. Send me your questions. Until next time, this has been an episode of Brave Not Perfect with me, Reshma Sajani. Hold up. 